John Stott wrote that Christianity is a rescue religion. It declares that God has taken the initiative in Jesus Christ to deliver us from our sins. This is the main theme of the Bible, and it was the main theme of the Sermon on Sunday. The New Testament uses many different metaphors to express what happened in Christ's death for us. Join pastors Kirk Sexton and Bruce Johnson as we discuss some theories of atonement and the mysterious truth of how the death of Jesus can put away the sins of the world. Welcome to the Full Dig Podcast. I'm Pastor Kirk Sexton, and with me, as always, is my good friend and colleague, Pastor Bruce Johnson. Kirk, it's good to be with you again. We're flying through this Apostles' Creed series, aren't we? We are, but it's uh, really great stuff. You know, we have a chance to look not only at the Creed, but the great scripture texts that uh, inform our faith in Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit the whole nine yards. It's great. And it was great to hear a different voice on Sunday. We got to hear from Clint from our Midtown campus. The first time for many people hearing Pastor Clint and uh, it was a real treat to have him here at the Mountain View campus. And of course, uh, Pastor Steve was at the Midtown campus and Pastor Jackie at the South Scottsdale campus. Uh, all of us looking together at the Apostles' Creed. I wonder how Clint was after preaching three services on Sunday. Did you see him after the 11 o'clock? I did not. I heard him at the 9 o'clock service and at the 10:15 service. did a great job. And the people kept talking about how um, much they appreciated the message he brought. Yeah, he's a very thoughtful, deep thinker, and he did a great message in our uh, pre-sermon um, study group. Pastor Steve did talk, talked about a parable that another preacher, I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, Earl Palmer. Palmer. Earl Palmer. Right. Yeah, that's right. Earl Palmer had used uh, some kind of a parable to, to talk about our plight as, as fallen people and how we try to answer that fallenness and sinfulness and, and, uh, and I think that inspired Clint to come up with his own parable, which he I thought he did a great job with. Great job. Uh, made me think twice about, do I want to go on a cruise again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was really great. He, he really, I think, did a great job on, on the topic. And, and uh, I thought that thought that parable was very creative. Well, speaking about the topic, Kirk, today we're looking at the phrase in the Apostles' Creed that says suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Mm. And you really have those uh, lines like nails going in the cross. Right. Crucified, and dead, and buried. I thought Clint did a great job kind of taking, well, we talked about it in our podcast last week, the, the idea that this Jesus really existed in history, and then he kind of highlighted the fact that why is Pilate getting all this press in the New Testament? It's because he was located in history, and so using Pilate was a way to locate Jesus in history. Exactly. When you read uh, ancient documents, when they talk about a certain event, they will mention it was uh, you know, the fifth year or whatever year it was of a particular ruler, and so it's that kind of... Uh, idea that's behind the language in the Apostles' Creed. He used the Gospel of Mark, and it is traditionally known as sort of a lean text. 
doesn't dwell on it. A short gospel and everything happens immediately. It's one of uh, Mark's. Euthus, 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 right? Which is the Greek word for immediately, and Mark uses that often. Yeah. And um, maybe we should uh, read that text that was used uh, in Clint's sermon. Yes. This is from Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 25. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two rebels, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests among the scribes were also mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then some of the bystanders heard it. They said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was God's son. It tells the story. And uh, I think... It always gets me, Kirk. Well, it does. And uh, they didn't have to describe a lot about crucifixion because they were so familiar with crucifixion. They knew about it. They knew how ghastly it was. Everybody uh, understood. You hear crucifixion, they knew what it was. Yeah, a terrible way to die and a long and painful way to die. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the death of Christ is good news for us because Christ died. Christ's death makes us right with God. Mm -hmm. And uh, we know that that's true. We know that's the heart of uh, uh, the message of Christ dying for us, the love of God lived out in this great act of Christ, his death, and then his rising again from death. But when we go about to describe, well, how exactly did that happen? Those are different theories about um, what is it in Christ's death that made us right with God. Mm -hmm. And uh, theologians call that different theories of the atonement. And the longer you listen to different theologians talk about the atonement, you find more and more different theories. I, you know, back when I was in college, I thought there were five theories. And now you read books and they say, well, no, there's really seven or nine or 15. And they go on and on. It's like there's an endless supply of all these theories of the atonement. But maybe we could uh, summarize for our listeners some basic theories of the atonement, so, some of the major ones, and mm -hmm. how are they described, at least give a label to them. and maybe some of the people that are associated, some of the Christian thinkers associated with these different theories of the atonement, and some scriptures about that. 
Well, this idea of looking at the theories of atonement made me dust off some of my systematic theology books. You always scare me when you talk about your systematic theology <laughs> books, Kirk. <laughs> they are a legion. I know. Well, I'm trying to understand this stuff that is so difficult. It's and, tough. And really, if you look at any of the theories of atonement, you can go, hmm, I can see that. Hmm, I can see that. I, I know, <laughs> because you, you can find scriptures that uh, really back up what they're trying to say. So exactly. uh, should, should we go for a theory of the atonement? Well, let's, let's look at a few. You've got three for us today? I've got, uh, I think, five I've oh, listed five. down here. Oh, wow. Lucky you, Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> So, right. so we'll start with the moral influence theory, and that's the basic idea that Jesus came and died in order to bring about a positive change to humanity. St. Augustine uh, liked that theory very much, um, and uh, Kirk, you've got a couple scriptures there that talk about, uh, that kind of relate to that idea of Jesus bringing a positive change to humanity. Yes, uh, one of those proof texts is Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were yet, or while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right. And another one would be Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 5, where we read, And he, Jesus, died for all, so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So those are examples where you have that imagery in scripture of Christ making a positive change. Okay, so another theory, the ransom theory, mm -hmm. that Jesus died as a ransom sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And you have that in two different ways, uh, either uh, the ransom is paid to Satan or the ransom is paid to God the Father. Uh, so you, you have people in there writing, they're meditating on scripture, explain it in different ways. One big proponent in the other church for the ransom theory was Origen, mm. uh, who uh, wrote um, many things that are very useful, had some things that got him into trouble, some of his theories, but uh, had some good stuff. Reminds me of the hymn, Jesus Paid It All. Jesus Paid It All. That would be a great example of a yeah. uh, popular way to talk about that. Mm -hmm. So uh, one scripture that uh, we would have for that would be Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 where Jesus says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mm. So Jesus uses that term, ransom. Now, there's a very popular theory, which with a Latin name, why do we go back to these Latin names, Kirk? Because, I don't know, we love those big... Latin names on the Full Dig podcast. I guess. I so th this one is called... This is one of my favorite ones. It's one that always... This one, I think the Latin name helps me remember it. It sticks in my head. Yes. So what is the Latin name, Kirk? Christus or Christus Victor? Uh, or how do you say it? Some, something about Christ being victorious. Right, uh, exactly. must, must be in Latin. Uh, the basic idea that Christ dies in order to defeat the power of evil, such as uh, sin, death, and the devil in order to free humanity from their bondage. And this is that cosmic battle that you can imagine happening. And then, you know, Satan thinks he's one, but he's not really one. Good versus evil, light versus darkness. Yes. That's the whole thing. It's a very popular theory for the first thousand years of Christianity. This is the main theory, and a lot of people still uh, uh, gravitate to this theory. It makes sense. There's a lot of scriptures that uh, use this kind of language. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I'll read one. This is from Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And then uh, from Hebrew, Hebrews from Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So we could go on with more theories, but I think we've demonstrated the idea that a lot of different ways you can oh, talk about that. Don't short us. Oh, don't short us? You no, want to keep on going? I want all five. Oh, my goodness. So the next one is the satisfaction theory. Yes, yeah, the satisfaction theory that Jesus' death is understood as a death to satisfy the justice of God. The justice of God must be satisfied. Mm. And uh, St. Anselm was an opponent, uh, a proponent of this. Mm -hmm. uh, St. Anselm, uh, known for his ontological argument for the existence of God, one of the proofs of God's existence. Uh, but he liked this theory. And one of the scriptures that relate to this is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Mm -hmm. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, this priest in the book of Hebrews being Jesus. Mm -hmm. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And Hebrews does a lot if you... You know, I want to encourage our readers to, I was looking at the Hebrews text this morning, and he, there's just a whole lot of this priestly language and this, this idea that his, his priestly role was better than any other, you know, one that's not inherited, um, you know, like the priestly class of the Levites and such. And right. The book of Hebrews is something like reading the Talmud mm -hmm. in terms of uh, not uh, the reasoning that you expect from, say, the uh, traditional philosophers of, of Greece, but very much a Hebraic thinking of how you make an argument. Yeah. So you can read that Hebrews. Uh, I think most of 10 maybe might have a lot of that priestly language. Exactly. Okay, so this is the one that is, um, I think this one is is well understood by most people, but I we think... We hear about it a lot, don't we? We though? hear a lot about this. This is one that people, I think, maybe it's the most popular out there, maybe. And just to clear up, we don't mean the satisfaction theory. No, no, we're talking about the uh, the penal substitutionary theory. Uh, I always think of it just as substitutionary atonement, um, that God's wrath needed to be satisfied, I guess. is and so, so Jesus is the substitute for us. Right. And the uh, penal part is that uh, uh, there's punishment involved. Mm -hmm. Right. So Jesus uh, takes, takes the penalty in our place, penal substitutionary theory. Uh, John Calvin liked this. Martin Luther liked it. A lot of the reformers liked that. You still hear that a lot. A lot of the reform doc, uh, documents we have, the confessions and creeds out of the reformed heritage we have, uh, will mention the penal substitutionary theory. But um, Calvin does a lot with the, um, the offices that Jesus fulfilled too. So uh, I'm... The prophet, priest, and king, those yes, three offices, yeah, right? Yeah, so um, I don't know if I would find him to be 
like rock, rock solid on it. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Well, let's talk about scriptures. Uh, and I'm not a Luther guy, so I can't, I can't really. That's okay. We love you anyway. <laughs> I just don't know enough about Luther. I've studied Calvin much more. All right. Well, let, let's uh, go into some of the scriptures that um, use that imagery of the penal substitutionary theory. Uh, we have uh, from Second Corinthians chapter 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And then uh, the Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it was written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And also, I think if you look at if you wanted to look for an Old Testament text, maybe Isaiah 53, right? you know, seems to be maybe supporting this idea. But it's, uh, we have to say about any of these that there are theories, right? Exactly. And there are ways no to explain one, of them. Yeah, and no one church or body has said this is, this is our theory that we stand on. Our listeners who are familiar with Mere Christianity, the book by C.S. Lewis, may remember that Lewis tries to avoid a particular theory of the atonement because he doesn't want to talk about um, what one Christian uh, tradition says uh, as opposed to another. He's trying to say, well, what do we all hold in common? And Lewis, uh, sometimes when he was addressing people, uh, live audiences, he would try to talk about the atonement without using a particular theory. So here's a snippet mm. of a address by C.S. Lewis to the Royal Air Force during World War II. And Lewis said it this way, Christianity isn't a hobby or even a patent medicine. It makes statements. God exists. Man is broken. God became a man. That man can mend all other men. No one else can. Those who are not mended go into the dustbin. Hmm. So that was his attempt to military audience to say, well, this, this is basically what we believe about Jesus. What he has done makes us right with God hmm. and makes us right internally. Well, and all of these theories address the big problem. And I think that's one thing nice about the, the sermon that, that Clint did. He really stressed we have a real problem. We have a real issue. And all the ways that we try to solve it in our world um, do not work. Uh, we, need a, we need this brother that will jump in the ocean with us. And not just jump in, but to get us out of the ocean, onto the boat. And then Clint kind of finished up with the idea that we're not just on the boat for our comfort we're on the boat to go save others. Exactly. Yeah, a real full-bodied expression of what Jesus does for us and our participation now in the mission of Christ. Yeah. Now, we have, uh, as a regular feature, an archaeological feature, or what do we want to say? Tibet? It's, artifact? It's a, it's a highlight. A highlight, exactly. Yeah, yeah everyone exactly. looks forward to the archaeological little tidbit that you well, offer. Yeah, well, this week we have a great one, and that is uh, an inscription that mentions Pontius Pilate. Mm -hmm. 
So um, Pilate was only the procurator of Judea for a couple of years, and then uh, he got in trouble because there were riots and he wasn't controlling them very well, so he was called back, uh, and they put somebody else in charge of uh, that Roman province. And so there are not a lot of records about Pilate. Mm. So because of that, some people in, um, you know, beginning in the uh, 19th century, or perhaps a little earlier, said, well, maybe there wasn't a pilot. Maybe he never existed. Mm. And then in 1960, excavations were going on in Israel at a site called Caesarea that's right on the Mediterranean. And there's this wonderful, what we would call an amphitheater, but in the Roman times, they called it a theater. So it's, you know, half circle and it faces the water. Beautiful place. They still do concerts uh, mm. there in the uh, greatest theater of Caesarea. But a stone was found there that mentions Pilate, uh, found in 1960 by an Italian excavator. And let me read you the inscriptions. It, it was, uh, uh, some of the letters were uh, worn off on one side, and so you don't have a full inscription, but the, what survives says, to the divine Augustus, Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, Judea has dedicated Apparently, he did some repair work on the theater, and so he had a plaque saying, see, I did a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But very important for us. So since that time, we've found some uh, coins, ancient coins, that also mention Pilate. Um, but uh, just as the Apostles' Creed put in Pilate's name to say this really happened in history, we have uh, inscriptions that mention Pilate also was a person of real history. Well, and... At that time of the Passover, Pilate was in uh, Jerusalem, and he would have much rather have been in Caesarea. You it's, know? it's nice. You need to get the cool breeze in the afternoons from the water. Yeah, and instead he had to deal with these Jews and their festivals and the potential for uprisings. And, uh, and then along comes this itinerant preacher named Jesus of Nazareth. Pilate did not think he had a great gig. I don't think so, no. He, um, he might have been pretty irritated to be there at all. Well, we've also spent some time looking at the confessional standards, um, some from our denomination. Uh, we have one today from the Westminster Confession. Is it the larger or the smaller? Well, we have something from the Westminster Confession itself, okay. and then some lines from the larger catechism. And, of course, when we move from Scripture to the confessions, we are moving from, um, you know, the Word of God to uh, things that help us understand the Word of God and that help us understand the faith. And, and this really is a precious story, and I think we should uh, just acknowledge that, you know, uh, reading the story of the death of Jesus always gets me mm. because of how much Jesus loved us and how much uh, we love Jesus. So when you get to the... Westminster Confession, they're trying to say, okay, let's put all this into kind of um, some language so it talks about doctrine. Mm. And the Westminster Confession does that in chapter 8, paragraph 5, where we read, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and has purchased not only reconciliation, 
but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given to him. So you'll notice there the term sacrifice, right? The penal substitutionary theory is is very much in play here Mm -hmm. in the Westminster Confessions. But a perfect obedience might fit the satisfaction theory. You see, already it begins to slip away. These theories of the atonement are a little slippery, aren't Mm -hmm. they, Kirk? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and then you see fully satisfied the justice of his father. That could be the uh, substitutionary atonement theory, too. And then the redemption there, the purchase, not only reconciliation, but everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. He's made us right, so... You can play that in a couple different ways, can't you? These Westminster standards uh, or the Westminster divines were, they weren't uh, ready to sign up with one particular th- theory either, it sounds like, right? <laughs> well, well, it's it's an art as well as a science when you get into some of these deep theories in the confessions. Right. So uh, we're going to move from that, the theories of the atonement, to some other things that can be illuminated by the same line in the Apostles' Creed and the same texts we have in the Gospels of Jesus' death. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of them from the Westminster Larger Catechism mentions what you had talked about earlier, the, the offices of Christ as mm-hmm. prophet, priest, and king. Why don't you read that section sure. from the Larger Catechism? Question 43, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Answer is, Christ executes the office of a prophet in his revealing to the church in all ages by his spirit and word in diverse ways of administration, the whole will of God in all things concerning their edification and salvation. In question 44, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? And the answer Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God to be a reconciliation for the sins of his people and in making continual intercession for them. And then question 45, how does Christ execute the office of king? And the answer is Christ executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself and giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. Definitely a ruler, you know. A Are strong, you with me or not? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So uh, we've gone from talking about theories of the atonement in the um, eco-confessional standards to the threefold offices of Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. thought it also might be uh, good for us to look at what do we do with church and state? Uh, Pilate was a ruler. Uh, Jesus was condemned under Roman law and unjustly condemned, but condemned according to the law. So what is our relationship between we who follow Jesus between church and state? 
and a great place to look for answers on that topic is the Theological Declaration of Berman, mm -hmm. also a document in our eco-confessional standards and one that we looked at last week. And Kirk, you dug up a wonderful story about how the Theological Declaration of Berman came to be. Do you, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Well, I found this in a uh, Princeton Seminary Bulletin. Pastor Steve had given it to me, and uh, he was cleaning out his office, I think, from his, uh, his move from Valley Presbyterian Church to uh, New Jersey. And I was becoming a bit of a fan of BART, and I was reading a lot of BART, and so he gave me one of these um, bulletins. And in there is a story of this, of the, the Barman story, but it's a, a part of uh, an article called Reminiscence of Karl Bart by John God's, uh, Godsey. Do you know who that is? That you might you were a Princeton guy. Uh, I was a Princeton guy, so I don't know that. I remember that issue of the Princeton Seminary Bulletin. This used to be mailed out a couple times a year to all Princeton Seminary graduates until about 2009. They stopped mailing out physical oh, okay. copies. But yeah, there's this great. Uh, seminar that they had on Karl Barth, uh, anniversary of his birth or death, they held it at Princeton. Right. And uh, one issue of the Princeton Seminary Bulletin was just on what uh, happened at that convocation and uh, yeah. what different people said. Yeah, so this is, um, uh, this conference was called For the Sake of the World, and uh, it was on Karl Barth and his uh, ecclesial theology, so his theology concerning the church. And um, so this guy relates the story. He says, on another occasion, I asked Bart how much of the Barman Declaration he wrote. And he said that he wrote all of it, with the exception of 19 words added by Hans Osmussen. Am I saying that right? I think so. Osmussen. That's and, how I would say it. Yeah. It and, may not be right, but that's how I would say it. Well, then he told this great story, and I wanted to tell it last week, but I didn't have the notes in front of me, and I couldn't remember who the other German theologians that were kind of invited to work on this. So Now anyway, you're just you're, teasing us, Kirk. Well, you, you keep on drawing it out. How in the world <laughs> did Bart write almost the whole thing? All right. Well, here's the story. When the members of the Lutheran Reformed and United Churches were opposed to Nazification of the church in Germany, they decided to come together in Barmen on May 29th through the 31st, 1934. They appointed three persons to work on a common theological declaration for the meeting. These were Thomas, Thomas Barrett, a Lutheran from Bavaria, Hans Osmussen, a uh, Lutheran from the old Persian Union, and Karl Barth, a representative of the Reformed Church. Um, Barrett wrote the other two to meet at a hotel in Frankfurt where they could work out the declaration together, and this they did. And during the morning, they outlined the six points they wanted to make, and they decided on their plan of action. They would eat lunch at the hotel, then go to his room and or each go to their room and work out their own statement concerning, uh, concerning the six areas, beginning at two and ending at five. Then they would come together at five, compare what each had written, and then work out a common statement ba based on their three contributions. So lunch arrived, and Bruce, it was a fairly heavy one, served with wine, and afterwards there was coffee, 
liqueur, and big black cigars. It, it happens in German restaurants, even today. <laughs> yes. Then they went to their separate rooms. Bart ordered more coffee to be sent to his room, and he set to work working on the whole declaration as it stands now. Bible quotations and all, between two and five. All that is, except for the 19 words noted above. At five o'clock, there was a knock at the door. Asmussen entered and sheepishly explained that he had fallen asleep and slept the whole time. He enjoyed his lunch a little bit too much. Fell asleep. Right. And then a little bit later, Barrett came in and explained, Oh, I went to sleep. Both Germans had lain down for the afternoon nap, a custom in Germany, and had overslept, probably because of the wine and the liqueur, and came with blank sheets of paper, whereas Bart, not accustomed to the nap, had written the Barman Declaration. The other two men readily accepted his work, and thus it was that the Swiss Reformed theologian ended up writing the Declaration or Confession for most important for the most important synod during the church struggle so that, that's quite a story it's endearing to hear the the, the you know the these three guys getting together they're going to do some work they they enjoy their company they have nice lunch it's a heavy lunch they enjoy a little wine a little liqueur some cigars and then take a nap <laughs> Which is why we never have a big lunch before we record the full Get Dig podcast. Never. Never, never. we do. We, we always eat a light salad before. But Bart, I think, he said on this whole affair that he said church history is probably full of queer incidents like this. It probably is. We just don't know about them. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's the introduction. A great introduction. Thank you for that, Kirk, to the Barman Declaration. And the part we want to look at in the Barman Declaration is point five that begins with a quote from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Fear God, honor the emperor. Then begins with the statement of what, what they think is true. Scripture tells us that in the as yet unredeemed world in which the church also exists, the state has by divine appointment the task of providing for justice and peace. It fulfills this task by means of the threat and exercise of force, according to the measure of human judgment and human ability. The church acknowledges the benefit of this divine appointment in gratitude and reverence before him. It calls to mind the kingdom of God, God's commandment and righteousness, and thereby the responsibility of both rulers and of the ruled. It trusts and obeys the power of the word by which God upholds all things. And then goes on to say things that it rejects. We reject the false doctrine as though the state over and beyond its special commission should and could become the single and totalitarian order of human life, thus fulfilling the church's vocation as well. We reject his false doctrine as though the church over and beyond its special commission should and could appoint appropriate the characteristics, the task, and the dignity of the state, thus becoming itself an organ of the state. If you read the, uh, I don't know if you've read the biography on Bonhoeffer. I have read uh, the original biography of Bonhoeffer by uh, uh, Betka. 
Oh, uh, you've written the more recent, uh, read the more recent one. Yes, yeah. I read the uh, Eric Metaxas. Yes, but uh, at that time, the uh, Nazi Party was saying, "Well, we will have uh, a Nazi banner in uh, over the altar community above all the churches, and Nazi flags up there. We will tell the." pastors what the sermon's going to be and offer and, and give them prayers that they must pray in the church, things like that. So mm-hmm. really stepping way beyond uh, and giving people even today pause about mm. church and state. Right. Yeah. Very relevant for today. Well, we've also been learning a little bit about the apostles during this Apostles' Creed section. And who do we have for us today? Well, we have two apostles. We're playing a little catch-up today. And we have uh, two brothers, the brothers James and John, uh, both of them sons of Zebedee, Mm -hmm. and given the nickname Sons of Thunder by Jesus. So that's appropriate we deal with these two boys together. Yes. So uh, James is often associated with the line in the Apostles' Creed, uh, who was conceived from the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary, and John, often associated with the line, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. So the two lines that really locate Jesus in history mm. are associated with the th- sons of thunder. So uh, James and John, uh, along with Peter, become the inner three of the apostles. They are the ones that uh, go with Jesus and see Jesus transfigured mm-hmm. on the mountain uh, they go a little bit further on the Garden of Gethsemane uh, to pray with Jesus, be near to Jesus, even though they fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And uh, curiously, uh, James is the first of the 12, other than Judas, uh, to die. He is the first of the 12 who's martyred for his faith. And then John, by tradition, was never martyred for his faith. He, he died of old age, which is uh, interesting. Mm. Uh, such a distinction between those brothers. Right. So uh, John, uh, we um, think, wrote the Gospel of John and the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And uh, there's a John that writes the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Some people think it's the Apostle John. Other people think it's a different John. But Mm. uh, he he was literary, even though he's a fisherman, Mm. like uh, his brother James and like the other pair of brothers among the disciples, Peter and Andrew. What I did not know until I visited Spain is that uh, James is the patron saint of Spain. And in Spain, he's called Diago. Hmm. So Santiago, uh, that phrase is St. James. Wow. Yes. That's neat. Yes. And of course, San Diego is named after Santiago. I visited Spain and never learned that. Well, I visited San Diego and never learned that. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's very interesting. And then, so we're really getting, we're doubling up on our C.S. Lewis today, aren't we? Yes, we are. So I have another C.S. Lewis quote, a quote where C.S. Lewis mentions Pontius Pilate, which I thought would be appropriate for today. And this is from the Screwtape Letters. And so the Screwtape Letters that remember are uh, written like they are advice from one devil to another devil about tempting people. So you have to kind of read it backward. It's satire. So in uh, this very famous passage of the Screwtape Letters, uh, Lewis writes, He sees as well as you do that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but that form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. A chastity or honesty or mercy 
which yields to danger, will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. Pilate was merciful until it became risky. Mm. Right. He was put between a difficult situation. He had the Roman government pressing on him, and then he had the the Jewish leaders pressing on him, and uh, he submitted. He did. Yeah. And, and because of that, we are redeemed. Mm. Yeah. Well, Kirk, uh, besides having a quote from C.S. Lewis, we often have a quote from our Reform heritage, besides what we find in the eco-confessional standards. Well, I thought it was, I don't know, divine or Holy Spirit-led, but uh, on Twitter today, are you trying to say that God can do something divine I on Twitter? I don't know. No. Can anything good come out of Twitter? <laughs> Very little. Very little. This did come okay. from Twitter. It's a quote from R.C. Sproul. He says, if you take away the cross as an atoning act, you take away Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought uh, Clint did a good job on that. Uh, there's a, a quote in, uh, so I have this book uh, by Daniel Migliori, he's the, uh, I think he's taught systematic theology at Princeton. Mm-hmm. And uh, he quoted H. Richard Niebuhr, and Niebuhr was at, was it Union? There are a couple of Niebuhr brothers and a Niebuhr sister, and I get them all confused. Well, there's... Reinhold Niebuhr, there's... Yeah, Reinhold, and then there was Richard. Richard. Richard wrote kind of the famous Christ in culture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, this was a quote from him. He says, uh, and it's a critique of the naive form of liberal theology in America. He, he wrote, a God without wrath brought people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Right. And, and Niebuhr there is really saying that that's, that doesn't do anything. We, we really need the redemption we have in Jesus. Right. We need the cross, just as R.C. Sproul had said. It has to be part of our, our atonement. I was reminded of a, uh, a time I was in uh, Alpha, and there was a, uh, a young woman in our group, and she was um, from the Mormon she grew up, I think, in the, a Mormon family. Right. And she was there, and she was just puzzled. Why are you Christians so... I can't remember what exactly word she said, but why are you so consumed or enamored with the idea of blood? Mm. You know? And um, one, one of the, I think... Nikki Gumbel does a nice talk about talking about the covering of, uh, you know, that he was talking, probably it's uh, fits in that sacrificial, you know, that that he provides a covering for us. Um, And uh, but, you know, the blood is even in our uh, words of institution at the Lord's table. So, I mean. I didn't want to be Bible answer man, but it would have been a long conversation to talk about why why we Christians are so caught up or hung up on. Maybe that's what she said. Why are you always talking about blood? 
It's important. Yeah. Uh, I was doing uh, some more repair work at the house. We're actually putting together more IKEA furniture. Yes. As we uh, redo the home office. And I hit my thumb with a hammer and uh, still have a bandage on it today. It, it uh, hurts. After I did so, blood appeared. And, you know, my own blood is precious. Uh, the, when I see um, anybody that I love, if they're hurt or they're bleeding, it, it moves me. Mm. But the, thinking about the blood of Christ, it moves me deeper still mm. to think that he suffered and died for us. Yeah, definitely. Well, for our closing prayer today, I thought we might use the prayer that Clint put in our study guide. Would that be all right with you? That'd be great. All right, let us pray. In leaning upon his cross, let me not refuse my own. Yet in bearing mine, let me bear it by the strength of his. Jesus, thank you for the overwhelming love and forgiveness evident on the cross. I pray that you would teach me to trust in the way of self-sacrifice in my own life, that I might embody your love to a world that is in desperate need of it. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's go and cherish the old order cross mm. again and again. And pick up our cross daily. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Kirk. Thank you.